Let's worship through prayer. Father of mercies, we gather here to praise your name together as a family of believers. It doesn't matter how young or old, what background or past we have, if we share Jesus in our hearts, we are one body in Christ. Jesus, you are gentle and tender. You have so much compassion for us. Every day you provide the, with open arms exactly what we need. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. May we allow your justice to reign and not our own. We so often carry bitterness and anger towards one another. We long to be the judge. We raise ourselves up to be in charge and desire to rule over one another. Forgive us what selfish people we can be. Please forgive us for not letting you be the true judge. Jesus, we ask your forgiveness when we are indifferent towards your word, uncaring towards your church, and apathetic in our relationship with you. Father, if any of us here are with unconfessed sin, please convict us today. Reveal the areas in our hearts where we need to die to ourselves and bow our heads in humility. We view you through a tainted lens. Sin clouds our idea of who you are. Lord, please forgive us for not diving into the Bible to learn what your true attributes are. May we grow in our understanding of how your heart is full of mercy and grace towards us. Please help us to be drawn in closer to you. Our King, we need to give you thanks for all circumstances you place us in. Even through hardships and struggles, we know victory belongs to you. We thank you for the truth that comes in your word. Thank you that we have the freedom to read it and that we can fellowship together. Jesus, we want to thank you for how much you love us. So many of us don't understand how you possibly could love us like you do, but we're thankful. Lord, I pray for each person here that we would live out the calling or areas of service within our church body that you have directed us towards. I pray those individuals here who don't know where to serve, and even if they belong, I ask for boldness for each of us to pursue relationships with you and each other, that we could help sanctify and encourage one another. I pray that you would help direct each other towards truth and honesty and reconciliation if needed. Lord, we ask for your hand to guide the bigger body of Christ. We ask for you to protect Living Water Church in Vancouver, Washington. Please speak through Pastor Dave Leander. We also pray for Salem Heights Church and Pastor Justin Green, that you would guide he and the elders and the decisions they have to make. Please assist the elders and deacons in both churches to be seeking after you and choosing to follow you instead of the world. Lord, for many of us, fatigue is setting in and tiredness that some of us have never felt before. Only you can lift this from our souls. Only you can put that hope back into our lives. Only you can show us that true hope is in Jesus, our King. Please prepare our hearts to hear you today. Help us to put aside all other thoughts and focus on your word. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Wendy. You may have a seat. And for those of you that are note takers, get out your Bibles and your notebooks and pens. I'm so thankful to be in the Word with you, to be in a church that loves the Word of God. You love the Word of God, amen? Yeah. And you love the Word of God because you love Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God, amen? Yeah. And so we are going to dive into the Word. One of the people from the first service said, man, that, that sermon was like a drinking from a fire hose, but it was such a good fire hose. So if you are a new believer and you're not used to your Bible, you're going to get very familiar with it today. Uh, find your table of contents in your, the beginning of your Bible. You're going to need it. For those of you that have been walking with Jesus for a while, you're going to get fed some meat and potatoes today. So go ahead and turn to Daniel 9, 20 through 27. And that's where we're going to sit today. Now, I am old enough to remember when, in order to drive somewhere, you had to pre-plan your route. Remember those books of maps? Does anyone remember those? Who's as old as I am? Okay, great. You had to predetermine every turn to arrive at your destination. You would never get in your car and start driving before you had the destination. But with the advent of GPS, a new phenomenon emerged, did it not? Now we can begin driving in the general direction of where we're going while Siri, or whatever app you use, finds the directions for you. Last week, as Kelly and I were going to Sun River for a short retreat with the elders, we got in the car and I started driving not knowing where in Sun River we were staying. I started heading in the general direction of Bend, and Kelly, being a good wife, asked me as we were underway, she said, hey, do you know where you are going? 
And like any good, respectful husband, I said, no. But I know we're going in that direction, right? Today we come to a very well-known but confusing passage of Daniel. And as I've studied for it this week, I found myself in a similar situation as when driving with no directions. You see, Daniel 9, 20 through 27 has generated so many opinions and so many interpretations that is possibly one of the most debated passages of Scripture. So many opinions that many Christians become lost, and so they never even start the journey of looking at this passage at all. They're so fearful of not having the right details of trees that they miss the entire forest. But like in the car, we're not going to stop until we get all the detail, because we don't have all the detail. We're going to head in the direction of what we know to be true and rely upon the Lord to give us the rest of the detail as he sees fit and as he desires. And so as we do, we need to approach this passage with great humility. No one person, myself included, is absolutely certain of the entirety of this passage. And so you might hear today a different idea than you have before. Recognize that no one person knows the absolute entirety of this passage. But what we do know about this passage is that it is one in which God is answering the prayer of Daniel that we looked at two weeks ago. And this morning, we're going to hear God's answer to that prayer through his messenger Gabriel. And what we're going to see is a very clear answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And what I hope to show you this morning is that Jesus is the answer to Daniel's prayer. And you're going to get a lot of scripture and go through and you're going to know this passage well, but stay with me until the very end because what you're also going to see is that Jesus is not only the answer to Daniel's prayer, he's the answer for all that you're looking for as well. Now let's begin by reminding ourselves of the core of this prayer since it sets the background for our text today by reading a few of the passages in Daniel 9 and then we will read our section of text today. Join me in Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books, that word there means scripture, the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules." So we start to see the pattern of confession that Daniel is giving to this covenant God. Fast forward a little bit to verse 16 with me. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God because your city and your people are called by your name. He offered a prayer of confession and now a prayer of petition, asking God to act, and let's see how God answers. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. 
Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. You guys good? All right, God bless you. Let's pray. There's a lot here, isn't there? What we see in the first four verses of our text this morning is that Daniel prayed for the covenant God to redeem his people. Daniel prayed for the covenant God to redeem his people. Two weeks ago, I introduced to you the prayer of Daniel on behalf of this people that had forgotten God. And in it, we saw that Daniel had been reading the prophet Jeremiah. We were reminded of that as we read this morning. And he was deeply moved to prayer and confession because his people had broken their covenant with God. You see, the entirety of the Bible is based on covenant. He cried out for God to be merciful to those that repented from the sinfulness. Now, let's review that a bit. Let's get comfortable with the context here. The vast majority opinion is that Daniel was reading, obviously from Jeremiah, but specifically from Jeremiah 25 and or Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 25 and or Jeremiah 29. Let's turn there together so you guys can get comfortable with your Bible. Turn a little bit to the left to Jeremiah. If you've hit Isaiah, you've gone too far. Jeremiah 25. And then Jeremiah 29. Let's take a look first at Jeremiah 25, 3 through 12. This will be a reminder from a couple of weeks ago. Now remember, Jeremiah is prophesying at the end of Judah's time, right before exile into Babylon. So Jeremiah says this, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, But you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Now skip down to verse 12. Then after 70 years, after they've gone into exile for 70 years, and they're completed, Jeremiah says, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. Now, in Jeremiah 25 here, the prophet is acting as a prosecuting covenant lawyer. He's a prosecutor. He's bringing against Judah the evidence that they are guilty of rebellion against God's rule and have acted unfaithfully to that covenant relationship. And as a result of this, they would receive the consequence of 70 years of exile in Babylon because God is a good father who disciplines those he loves. Amen? But even then, God does not break his faithfulness. And so in Jeremiah 29, go ahead and turn there with me if you haven't already. 
In Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 10, he gives them hope after that time that they will indeed be able to go back to Israel if they respond in repentance. And this is the motivation for, the, for Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9. So let's take a look at Jeremiah 29. And remember, this is a letter that is written and sent to the exiles in Babylon. 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the motivation for Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9. Lord, you said this through Jeremiah. When's it going to happen? Are you ready yet? And he's imploring God on his covenant faithfulness. God, you are a God of covenant. Do what you said. Now let's go a little bit deeper though because prosecutors and lawyers don't get to make up laws, or at least they shouldn't. <laughs> they simply have to argue their cases based upon the laws already put in place by the lawgiver. So where was Jeremiah getting this law? Was he just coming up with it? Well, he gets it from the law of God in the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, the law of God. So let's go ahead and go back there. Go back to Leviticus. If you turn all the way back to Leviticus, if you get to Exodus, you've gone too far. Okay, Leviticus 26. I told you you're going to get used to your Bibles today, amen? Leviticus 26. And let's take a look at 26, verses 27 through 35. Notice how similar it sounds to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is just repeating it. God says through Moses to Israel, But if in spite of this, verse 27, you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Notice that number. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. In other words, they'll be stopped by the enemies that surround them so much so they won't be able to get food, and so they will resort to eating their own people. Verse 30, And I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, more exile. And I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy, in other words, finally enjoy, its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Now pause for a second. Remember that the law of God is given to the people of God in the form of a covenant treaty between a conquering king and a conquered people. Everybody say conquering king and conquered people. Okay, a covenant treaty between those two parties. And in that covenant, there are laws provided for the people to follow in order for them to be obedient and submitted to the king. And detailed in those treaties are rewards for obedience and consequences for disobedience. This section is consequences for disobedience to that treaty. Now notice the number seven and the use of it. He will punish them sevenfold because of their misuse of the system of Sabbaths or sevens. These Sabbaths that are being referred to are seven-year cycles that mark time for God's people. And they are explained just one chapter later or sorry, earlier in Leviticus 25. And we're going to be able to get to that in just a moment. But before we do, let's see if God gives any avenue for repentance that will lead to redemption of the covenant relationship. He told them the consequences for disobedience. Let's see if he gives them an avenue for repentance. Look at verse 40 in Leviticus 26. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also walking contrary to me, 
so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Notice the importance of covenant. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. And notice that L-O-R-D is all caps. I'll explain that in a minute. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. All capitals. Now remember that in our English Bibles, when the L-O-R-D is in all caps, behind that is the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, yod heh vav heh Yahweh. It's the name of God. It's the covenant name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As Daniel hears from the scripture written by Jeremiah, he would have realized, and so should we, that Jeremiah is not making up laws with rewards and consequences. Rather, he is merely executing it based upon the law provided by God to his own covenant people. Friends, the biblical theology here is so important to understand, to understand Daniel 9. We have the law provided all the way back in Leviticus given to Moses. Then we fast forward through Israel's sinful rebellion to the time of Jeremiah where he says, you are found guilty of rebellion and exile is coming. And then we fast forward to the end of that very exile to Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9. And so in the prayer of Daniel 9, Daniel is holding so tightly to these prior scriptures, the law, the prophets, Daniel. The law, the prophets, Daniel. He's holding so tightly to these and the covenant faithfulness of God that he's crying out saying, God, you're the one that gave the law. Jeremiah prophesied of it. Act within your covenant and redeem us. Are we done with the 70 years yet? And this is confirmed by the text of Daniel 9 itself. Would you go back there with me? Back to Daniel 9. Give me an amen when you get there. In the entirety of Daniel, all of the chapters except for chapter 9, God is called different titles by Daniel. And none of them are his covenant name by which he introduces himself to Moses and the people of God. The covenant name, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D in our Bibles. In Daniel 9, you will notice that it is used eight times in seven verses. Nowhere else in the book of Daniel. Eight times in seven verses in Daniel 9. Anytime it's not used, but the, the word Lord with a capital L and then small O-R-D is used, that's another word, Adonai, which means Lord, in other words, the dominant party in the covenant. Chapter 8 is all, sorry, chapter 9 is all about covenant. Notice even the wording in Daniel 9.4 there, 9.4. I prayed to Yahweh, the Lord, my God, and made confession saying, O Lord, Adonai, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Friends, Daniel is calling upon God to stay true to his covenant faithfulness even if the people have been unfaithful. Now, notice God's response. And friends, this is the character of your God. Look again at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, he hadn't even finished praying yet, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning... Not even at the end, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are, what are those words there? Greatly loved. 
Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. God's response is to immediately command action because of the repentance of Daniel and the fact that Daniel is greatly loved. Friends, when true repentance is in place and full confession occurs, God in heaven is one who hears and proclaims to you, you are greatly loved. But notice that God does not follow that up with, because I love you, I will do as you want and make your every wish come true right now based upon your timing. Notice that that's not in the text at all. He says, I love you, Daniel. But instead he says, I hear you, but I am not able to complete what you ask just yet because there is a greater, bigger, and more ultimate plan at work. I wonder if one of the reasons that our prayer lives are not active is because we have a false expectation that prayer requires God to act on our terms and our timing. And so when he doesn't, we think he is being unfaithful and uncaring or that he is not real. When in fact, prayer coupled with the study of God's word is for our hearts to be brought back into alignment with his plan, with his rule, and with his timeline. God's answer for Daniel was not going to be immediate. Instead, what we see him declare is something different. God answered Daniel's prayer by explaining his decree of an ultimate jubilee to come. God answered Daniel's prayer by explaining his decree of an ultimate jubilee to come. Now, some of you are immediately thinking, Hans, what on earth is a jubilee? Wasn't that the fair we had in grade school? It was like a jubilee? And how does that answer the prayer at all, you might be thinking? Well, just follow with me. Let's break it down a bit. Throughout Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, there is this use of this word that is translated into the English in the ESV as weeks. If you have another translation, like the NIV, it may be sevens. It may say there in verse 24, 70 sevens are decreed, or 70 weeks. And so in our Western mindset, we immediately go into mathematic computation mode to use these numbers to figure out the timeline of events that did or will occur. And this is why in the mid-1800s, an entirely new method of interpreting the Bible and the cycles of time in the biblical story was created. And at its core were these four verses. And this interpretation uses these verses to construct a view of the last days of the church that ends with a secret rapture of the church to heaven, a seven-year period of tribulation, and focuses these verses that we're about to read upon a figure called the Antichrist and a seven-year peace treaty that he makes with the nation-state of Israel. Now, this might be, if you're familiar with the Left Behind series, uh, familiar to you because it's the undergirding of that entire storyline. How many of you are familiar with that idea? A lot of you, yeah, okay? Now, friends, because of the difficulty of this passage, I want to tell you that we need to be humble and say that could be true, okay? Can we all admit that? That could be true. Now, we don't know. I even used to teach this view as it was what I grew up with and what was presented to me because it is the majority view in many evangelical churches in the U.S. The idea of the rapture is huge in evangelical Christianity, But as I've studied it further, I've found that there are actually other views to this passage that have been held by the church for over 2,000 years that state that this is actually speaking primarily not of an antichrist, but of the Christ, of Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. It's the messianic view. But to see this view, we have to untangle our minds from the necessity of viewing these numbers as definable, quantifiable, linear time. We have to see them symbolically. Now, let me give you a quick illustration that might help. When my friend Marcel Yanogo from Burkina comes to the U.S., he will ask how far away a destination is if we're driving there. When he first came, I would say to him, oh, it's this many kilometers or this many minutes away. But he quickly taught me that that meant nothing to him because that's not how they think in Burkina Faso. Instead, I would say that a trip was like a trip from two towns in Burkina, Oh, that's, as, that's going to be as far as it is from Ouagadougou to Bobo Dilasso, I'd say. Oh, he'd say. Now I get what you're talking about. I know what the journey will be like then. 
Linear time is how we in America and the Western world order everything. But that is unlike almost every other culture on earth. That is why when you go on mission trips, you are probably like me and get super annoyed that nothing is on time. Can I get an amen? Anybody who's been on a mission trip? Why is no one else in the world checking their watch like us, right? And so we have to kind of dismantle that and break it apart. For the Jewish people, their entire calendar and sense of time came from the law of God, given to them and reimagined at the Exodus. Let me show you what I mean. Would you turn back again to Leviticus with me? Go back to Leviticus. See how familiar you're getting with your Bible? Leviticus 25. Now notice this is right before the chapter we looked at earlier in Leviticus that discusses rewards for obedience and curses for disobedience. And so what we're going to talk about here, keeping it would mean obedience, not doing it would mean disobedience. Take a look, 25, Leviticus 25, verse 1. The covenant God, the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there's that number again, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So there's this initial cycle of seven years. Six years you work, and the seventh year you rest and trust in God for his provision. But then it gets bigger than that. It says this, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven sevens, or seven weeks of years, shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan." That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat of the produce of the field. So the people of God were to think in seven-year cycles. Just like the Sabbath cycle in any given week that was modeled in the creation account, six days God worked in creation, seventh he rested, there was to be six years of work and a seventh year of rest illustrating a trust in the provision of God. But the view of the movement of time did not stop there. Each seven-year Sabbath cycle or week of years was to be arranged in and a part of yet another cycle of seven. Seven times seven is? Okay, some of you did well in math. Seven times seven is? 49. Okay, in the 49th year, you would then have a Sabbath rest again. But then that would be followed by an additional 50th year called a jubilee year in which you also had ultimate rest and restoration. So two years off from harvesting and you just trusted in God. Now it was during this jubilee year that any debts would be redeemed and the land that was taken as a consequence of debt would be given back. Imagine if one day the, the credit card company said, guys, this year we're forgiving everything. How awesome would that be, right? That's what would happen. It was a year of rest and trust and redemption and restoration. Even more important is the fact that it was exactly because Israel had not kept this way of observing time that God was using the same numeric symbolism as the illustration of their rebellion. This is why he was extracting 70 years of exile out of them in Babylon. They had not let the land rest for its Sabbaths. And this is what is laid out in the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And this is what's proclaimed by Jeremiah. And this was the context of how Daniel would receive the message from God in answer to his prayer. You see why this biblical theology is so important? 
And so Gabriel, the messenger angel, is dispatched to tell Daniel that, yes, the immediate exile of Babylon is ending, but the sin of the people will persist. And so a new cycle is beginning where God has decreed that he will bring in the ultimate jubilee, the ultimate year of rest and restoration, of redemption and provision. God will do a work that will bring about the ultimate jubilee. The use of weeks or sevens in Daniel 9 makes this clear. Seventy sevens, 70 weeks are decreed. The fact that this is not just seven sevens, but 70 sevens mean it is a completion. There is no further need for any other jubilee year or cycle of time. It is done. But how could how would God bring in a jubilee year if the people are just continuing in rebellion in the covenant as it is? Well, something new would need to happen. There would need to be a strengthening of the covenant of grace given to God's people in a way that does not remove the old but makes it more powerful. To make it more powerful, something would need to change the rebellious hearts of the people. And this was not a new idea. This was contained within the Old Covenant in the sections of rewards and curses, even in the law, and reiterated in the prophet Jeremiah. Would you turn to Jeremiah again with me? Jeremiah 31. You guys are going to know Leviticus and Jeremiah like the back of your hands. Jeremiah 31. And look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Notice this is just after Jeremiah talks to the exiles. Possibly even something that Daniel was reading himself. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a... What are those two words there? What is it? New covenant. There we go. Say it loud. You're part of it. Say it again. New covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Amen? Amen. A new covenant would be initiated not through a human teacher like Moses or King David, but by God himself. And it would be a covenant that would be similar but different in that the law would change God's people from the inside out. God's spirit would be put in their heart so that they would be his people and he would be their God. And so this ultimate jubilee that Gabriel is proclaiming to Daniel is the cycle by which that will occur. God had heard Daniel's prayer and would act to bring redemption. But how? How would he answer this? Well, the ultimate jubilee could only be accomplished in the person and work of Jesus. The ultimate jubilee could only be accomplished in the person and work of Jesus. How do we know this? Well, let's look back at Daniel 9 and let's really dive into that text. Now that you guys have a biblical theology that surrounds what we're doing, let's go back and look at that text. Daniel 9, 24. We see that Daniel has had, uh, has had Gabriel come to answer him after his prayer for redemption. And let's now look at what this ultimate jubilee, this cycle of the complete Sabbath rest for God's people and Jerusalem will accomplish. Right there in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. The first three items are similar. The transgression means that God's redemptive action would somehow take care of the specific sins and transgressions for which Israel was being punished. It would bring the possibility of sin on earth to a close as well, and it would secure atonement with the one holy God. Now, this means that the evil that separated and divided creation from the Creator would be paid for. 
Now, we don't have to go much further as Christians to understand what Gabriel is pointing toward, do we? Who's he pointing toward? Jesus. In the sacrificial death and resurrection of of Jesus of Nazareth, God presented himself in the flesh to become the ultimate, perfect, spotless sacrifice that once and for all took on the sins not only of Israel, but of the whole world and created a way to be reconciled once and for all with the holy creator God and be forgiven by him. Jesus' death on the cross put an end to sin and atoned for your rebellion and mine against his holiness. And friends, if you have not accepted that sacrifice on your behalf, you are dead in your sin, the Bible says, and your rebellion against God will be judged on the final day of judgment. If that's you, and you're walking in ambiguity towards Jesus Christ, you don't really know where you stand, you're not sure about him, Today is the day to repent and confess your sins before him and accept Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. If you want to do that, he's waiting, just like he was waiting for Daniel, for you to confess so that he can swiftly come to you and say, you are greatly loved. That's why I died for you. If that's you and you want to do that today, I would love to talk with you. Our other elders would love to talk with you. Ryan's right over there, one of our elders. Somewhere around here, Tyler's running around. He was over there, there's his wife, but he's not here now. Nick, our associate pastor in the back, would love to talk with you. He's right back there. We'd love to talk with you about that. But then the next three items speak clearly of Jesus as well. First, to bring in everlasting righteousness. This is not a perfect peace or shalom based on our experience, but that the righteousness brought in by Jesus' death and resurrection is enough. Because of Jesus' death, there is no further need for animal sacrifice as with the Old Covenant. And that will never be undone. That righteousness is everlasting because of Jesus. And then it says to seal both vision and profit. This is not meaning to hide away God's plan, but to mark it as complete. In other words, it has the ultimate authority's seal of approval on it. And the author of the book of Hebrews tells us that while God used to speak through prophets and visions, he doesn't need to anymore because he now speaks through Jesus and his accomplished work and word. And lastly, it says to anoint a most holy. In the ESV, it says holy place, but you most likely in your Bibles have a footnote that shows that this is actually ambiguous and it could mean either holy one or holy thing. Now friends, the entirety of the Bible as well as Daniel points not to a place but to a holy one, an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ. As priest, Jesus offered a sacrifice that is complete and can never be removed. As prophet, Jesus put an exclamation mark on the end of God's message and said, I am it. And as king, Jesus has been anointed over God's people, his own beloved assembly. Brothers and sisters, Daniel prayed for God to act and redeem, and God answered. Jesus is the answer. From here, admittedly, it begins to get murky and confusing, though. And there are multiple interpretations of what these next three verses mean. But rather than bore you with all the possibilities, let me propose to you what has generally been the orthodox view for most of church history, that these verses too speak of a Messiah, of the Christ. First is the issue of how these next words are broken up. Take a look at your Bible there. In the ESV, it separates them into seven sevens, starts a new sentence, and then has 62 sevens. But this is one of the few places I dislike the ESV's rendering of the English. In in the New King James, in the NIV, in the NASB, and others, you will see that they are actually joined, kind of like this. Look up on the screen. This is the NASB. The the prince, okay? There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, okay? So from the time to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, math, math folks, seven plus 62 is... 7 plus 62 is 69. In other words, 69 sevens. Now, great work has gone into this on the part of many scholars over the centuries to find the exact date that the order went out to rebuild Jerusalem and then calculate the coming of Christ. Was it the order in the book of Nehemiah or in Ezra? Was it the divine word in verse 23? Nobody knows. The honest answer is nobody knows. 
And I think that might be intentional. We can become extremely prideful and cause great harm when we start believing we know the exact timing of God's plan and we put it on billboards and tell people Jesus is coming and then he doesn't. I want to propose to you that instead, these weeks or sevens are not meant as exact quantifiable times, but rather markers in history. We can think of the ultimate jubilee to be broken down into a process rather than an exact timeline. So from Daniel through 69 sevens, an anointed one will finally come, and between Daniel's day and that day, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but it will be surrounded by trouble. Then, at the last round, the last decreed cycle, the last seven, the last days, an anointed one, a Messiah, it says there in verse 26, will be cut off. Yikaret in the Hebrew, cut off to nothing. Now, this is a very curious phrase because the Hebrew word behind it is used throughout Scripture for a couple of things. To kill someone, destroy them and their life, as well as to cut covenant. Now, this is where the two parties of a covenant would cut a sacrifice in half so as to specify their understanding of the consequences, they too would get cut in half, should either of them break the covenant. And because of this covenant maker that is killed on behalf of the covenant, there will then be other actions that follow. The next verse says the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, its temple, are destroyed quickly like a flood. War was to surround it, and desolations similar to the desolations that Daniel mentioned in his prayer, such as exile of the people, would occur. And then someone, in verse 27, he shall make a covenant with many. But who is this he? And what covenant will he make? The Hebrew is admittedly ambiguous in multiple ways in this verse. Not only is the he not well defined, but also the statement, make a strong covenant in the ESV, is also ambiguous. The wooden Hebrew behind it says instead, he will make strong a covenant. In other words, the undefined he will strengthen an already existent covenant. Some of your Bibles use the phrase, he will confirm a covenant. So let's take an educated guess, shall we? Who has been the focus of all of Daniel and all of the Bible so far? An anointed one who brings an end to sin, who will be cut off, but in that cutting off will strengthen an already existent covenant that would have most likely been obvious to Daniel because his very prayer was in reference to it. Further, because of the activity of this anointed one, his cutting off, his killing, God's judgment would come down on Jerusalem. It would be wiped out by war, desolated, the people sent into exile. And because of this, sacrifice and offering would cease being offered in the temple. Friends, just a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection in A.D. 70, Jerusalem was leveled by Roman armies. The temple was destroyed. The people were sent into exile throughout the world, and offerings ceased. And to this day, Jerusalem's ability to offer sacrifice on its own behalf is desolated. Friends, this whole section is speaking of Jesus. No greater exegetical error has existed than to ascribe to Jesus what some think to be the anti-Jesus, the anti-Christ. When Jesus died... Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross of Calvary. He alone performed the ultimate perfect sacrifice that brought an end to transgression, sin, and iniquity. Jesus alone removed the need for further sacrifices. Jesus alone confirmed and finalized the proclamation of God's prophetic word. Jesus alone was cut off from the land of the living and in so doing was able to confirm a perfect and irrevocable covenant with the many who are truly God's elect people. Listen to the same language used to describe Jesus as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. This is Isaiah 53 verses 8 and then 11 through 12. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of, what's the word there? Many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. He shall confirm a covenant with many. Daniel prayed for God to act and redeem his people, and God answered. Jesus is the answer. He's the one that has and will bring in God's ultimate jubilee of rest and restoration. In our earlier reading from Isaiah 61 that Heidi shared with us, the prophet was speaking of the year of the Lord's favor. It was a prophecy of the ultimate act of God to bring about an eternal rest an eternal jubilee. The gospel according to Luke proclaims that Jesus claimed these words for himself and that by his life, death, and resurrection, God was bringing about the ultimate jubilee. Turn there with me to the book of Luke in the New Testament. The book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Through Jesus, God was working redemption and restoration. He was and is the ultimate jubilee. He was the answer to Daniel's prayer. All that is left is the one line that he didn't quote, the final judgment, the wrath of God being poured out on the unrepentant. But not only that, look forward to Luke 22. And look at the words of Jesus here as he joins the rest of the disciples for the Passover meal in the upper room before his death on the cross. Look at Luke 22. Starting in verse 17, Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the, what are those two new words? New covenant in my blood. The gospel according to Matthew captures it this way. Notice the wording. Jesus says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He will confirm a covenant with the many. In the death of Jesus Christ, in the very blood of Jesus Christ. A covenant was made with you and I and the people of God. And after his ascension to heaven, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit into his followers as fulfillment of the promises given in the law and in the prophets that they, that we, would have changed hearts so that they and we would be his people and he would be our God. Brothers and sisters, Daniel prayed for God to act and redeem, and God answered. Jesus is the answer. All that is left for him is to finish what he initiated in his death and resurrection. And that is found back in Daniel 9. It says there in that last verse 27, 
that after this activity we've looked at, there would come one who desired to desolate or destroy the people of God, but even for him there is an end decreed. Now, we don't know what this means, and that's why I'm not taking much time on it, because it could be referring to the Roman general in 70 AD. He leveled the temple and made it desolate. It could mean the work of Satan in general towards the people of God or his work through some human individual that is against God, that is anti-Christ in the future. But with this verse, no one fully knows. No one fully knows. We're simply going to have to wait and trust God to figure it out. What we do know is that God has decreed an end to evil just as he decreed and accomplished an end to sin through Jesus Christ. And it too will come. Daniel prayed for an answer and God gave him one and it was Jesus. Now you might say, Hans, this is all well and good. Man, I feel really comfortable with Leviticus now and Jeremiah now. So what? What do I do with this? Well, friends, I want you to know what you can do with this is realize that Jesus is still the answer. Jesus is still the answer. God delivered this to Daniel as an answer to the prayer for redemption, and Daniel did not leave to see it, live to see it. But what it did accomplish was that it kept the true people of God strong in the coming ages of trial and tribulation, as they were surrounded by evil so that they might know that God would make good on his promise of redemption. We now exist in this last cycle, this last seven that began with Jesus. And as we go through the rest of Daniel, we'll talk about what that last three and a half years is referring to. And this is why the New Testament writers called their day, almost 2,000 years ago, the last day. And we are in the last day. Friends, God does not work in our timelines or view of time. He has a plan that he is accomplishing. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ ushered in the last day. He died on our behalf, atoned for our sin, reconciled us to the Father God, and poured out his spirit into his church to confirm God's covenant of grace with us. And this church age will come to a close when God's decreed end, that no one knows but the Father, occurs, where he does away with evil and the forces of darkness once and for all. So the big question is, where are we in this church age? Are we almost at the end, Hans? And I would say in prayer, God, I hope so. (laughs) But no man knows the day or the hour. It is not for us to know times or seasons that the Father has decreed. It is merely for us to proclaim this truth until he comes to finalize his redemptive activity and put an end to evil. One truth, and that is that Jesus was and still is the answer. Jesus was the answer to Daniel's prayer, and he's still the answer to every prayer that you have. Friends, what's your prayer lately? Are you praying for an end to evil, chaos, and injustice in this world? That will come only as hearts are turned to Christ and he comes again to rule and reign. No amount of protest or legislation is going to get that accomplished. Only changed heart in the name of Jesus. Are you praying for an end to the guilt and shame that plagues you individually because of your sinful past? Friends, Jesus is the answer. Christ has paid the price for your sins and he awaits your prayer of confession and repentance. He is ready to swiftly give you his forgiveness. Jesus is the answer. Are you praying for assurance that you are saved and forgiven because you just don't feel like it? Maybe you're experiencing doubt. Friends, Jesus is the answer. He's poured out his spirit into your heart and made you a part of his people. Dig into his word in prayer and be part of his people. You'll come out of it. Jesus is the answer. Maybe you're praying for physical healing today. Even there, Jesus is the answer. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has assured you of the resurrection to come where sickness will no longer have a hold on you. Jesus is the answer. Are you praying that God would meet you in your loneliness? Well, friends, by his work, Jesus has confirmed a covenant with his people and he is calling you to be part of this new covenant people. Jesus is the answer. 
No matter your prayer, the lyrics of the old song are ringing true. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. A Messiah was promised as the answer to Daniel's prayers for redemption. Jesus fulfilled those prayers, and because of this, we can be at peace no matter what comes against us. Jesus said to us, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus assured you that this life would not be easy. In fact, he promised you, friends, take in the promises of God, amen, that life would be hard. But we can be at peace no matter what comes against us because Jesus has overcome. He will come again to put an end to all that plagues his creation. Friends, Jesus is the answer. Father God, thank you that you have made your words so clear that there is no other answer besides Jesus. Thank you that even in this context that so often is taken and turned into mathematical computations of when you return, even it too points to the fact that Jesus is the answer. Help us to be firm on that foundation of truth and nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen.